things. Um, we're Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 12. We're going to jump right into it um, just for the sake of time here. So if you're joining us and you're, you weren't here the last few weeks or maybe you're visiting today, we've been going through Thessalonians. We went through 1 Thessalonians. Now we're in 2 Thessalonians. And last week we talked about how Paul, who's the guy who wrote this letter, he was a, a kind of a terrorist and then he became a follower of Jesus. He was killing Christians, then he became a follower of Christ. Last week we talked about how Paul made it clear that the final return of Jesus, which sometimes the, the scriptures refer to as the day of the Lord, uh, the day of judgment, the day of God, would not happen unless a couple things clearly happened first. And so um, we talked last week about what, did we ta- what do we mean when we say that Christ's return is imminent because Paul makes it really clear that there's some things that have to happen before the day of the Lord, before Jesus returns to gather his people and to execute judgment on his enemies. And so we go verse by verse through the scriptures most of the time. And so sometimes you wind up with topics like this, which are, uh, are important for the church of God because this role, as it were, of teaching and preaching exists to equip you, right? And so there's two ways that this can equip you. One is it equips you so that you can pass on to the next generation so that they're equipped. Or two, we're going to be in it and then you're equipped to whatever the Lord has on the horizon. And so these are things that we can't skip over just because they're a little weird. Maybe you feel like this is strange. This is uh, out of your comfort zone, but that's all right. At least you're not preaching on it, right? So um, we talked last week about how he says two things have to happen before the day of the Lord. The first is he says there has to be a great apostasy or rebellion, which we said was a falling away, not in the world, but a falling away from within God's people or people who claim they're God's people, okay? And so in other words, those who are within the church who say that they are believers, um, but they're actually not, they were never part of us, that's what first, or that's what John says, they were never part of us, there's a great falling away And we think, uh, I think it's reasonable to think, based upon this passage, that their falling away is precipitated by or in tandem with the revealing of the man of lawlessness, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. This revealing of the man of lawlessness, who he is, I don't know, what what, what can we know about him, and those sorts of things. And so just credit where credit is due um, for this sermon. I I normally don't use uh, commentaries. But for this sermon, I read books by MacArthur, Beale, Chapman, and Piper, okay? So just so you know, um, so everything I say is stolen from someone else. I want to I begin by, by reading from Jesus, however. I'm going to steal from him right now. In Matthew 24, this is what Jesus says. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, they asked him three questions. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, yada, yada, yada. He says, these are just the beginning of birth pains. And then he continues, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation. They'll put you to death. You will be hated by all for, the, for my name's sake. 
and this is where I want to slow down. And then many will fall away. That's apostasy. They will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And this is where I really want to slow down even more. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. So lawlessness increases, love decreases, according to Jesus. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. And he goes on and on and on. And we're going to stop there. The reason that I want to read that first is because what we're reading here in 2 Thessalonians has a biblical backdrop, okay? Has a biblical backdrop in the teachings of Jesus, has a biblical backdrop in the book of Daniel and other places. And so we're going to read this from 2 Thessalonians now. This is Paul. He says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, meaning the day of the Lord's return, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Two things. The son of destruction, that's an appositional phrase. In other words, the man of lawlessness, who is the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? All right, we'll stop there. So what's the biblical backdrop to what Paul is discussing? And by the way, if you have questions, jot them down. Lord willing, if we have time at the end of the, uh, of the sermon, we'll do a couple Q&A. So what's the biblical backdrop that Paul is referencing, that Jesus is referencing? Well, in the book of Daniel, which is one of the minor prophets, we see a prophecy that points to a real historical figure. In other words, it's not one of these ambiguous prophecies. It's a prophecy that came true about a guy named Antiochus IV, okay? Antiochus IV, he was a, a general who then wound up kind of taking over the region, which included Jerusalem, and he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes, you may recognize the word Epiphany. Epiphanes means gr God manifest. And so here's a guy who took over Jerusalem and referred himself as, you know, Bill God Manifest. You know, Antiochus, the manifestation of God. And this guy Antiochus, what he did was he invaded Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. He, like, killed a pig on the altar. He burned the scriptures. He killed a bunch of Jews. And he ultimately instituted pagan sacrifice. This was in around 170 B.C. or so. And if you're a student of history, you know that this led to the Maccabean Revolt, which eventually led to Hanukkah, the Eight Crazy Nights, okay? Um, but it was from Antiochus invading Jerusalem, desecrating the temple, that we see this prophecy pointing. And we see that fulfillment of that Daniel prophecy in Antiochus Epiphanes. But 200 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ references this event again by pointing back to it and saying that the abomin abomination of desolation, which is what he's called in Daniel, that happened again would happen again. 
that prior to Jesus' return, this same kind of event would occur. And this is important to realize because in much of biblical prophecy, we see this kind of cycle of already not yet, already not yet, already not yet. And like I said last week, the day of the Lord refers to everything from the Exodus to the invasion of the Assyrians to the destruction of Moab. It goes on and on and on. Already not yet. It's, it's cyclical, okay? And so here we have Jesus looking at this reference, pointing to it, and this is the backdrop of which Paul understands the end times. So Jesus, in discussing the end of days, he talks about another man of lawlessness, another abomination of desolation, another, another guy who, who is the son of destruction. He comes, he wants to make himself the chief object of worship. He calls, Jesus calls him the abomination that makes desolation or abomination of desolation. And so then pulling on Jesus' teaching, Paul is going to unpack this a little bit more here, saying that the guy who Daniel prophesied about, the guy who Jesus prophesied about, he must be revealed. Notice that's passive. He will be revealed. Now, he doesn't reveal himself. He will be revealed before Jesus returns. Okay? So let's focus on what we can know. I'm not into conjecture. Okay? What can we know? What will the man of lawlessness do? All right? I told you, this is why we go to seminary. First thing the man of lawlessness do, he will behave lawlessly. Okay? <laughs> he will behave lawlessly. Now, the idea here is that if a follower of God, a people of God who submit to the kingdom of God, if that's defined by someone who's going to acknowledge and fall in step with God's kingdom reign and kingdom rule, the opposite of that would be a man of lawlessness who refuses to submit to God's kingdom reign and kingdom rule. Okay? And so this is someone who is against the law of God, who is counter to the teaching of God. And remember what Jesus said, as love decreases, lawlessness increases. I think all of us feel like lawlessness has increased. That's one thing we can know. The second thing we can know about the man of lawlessness in terms of what he will do is this. It says he will oppose, and I'm going to kind of, I'm going to put this out there and then explain it. He will oppose every pagan worship. Now, this is important. Because this tells you that the man of lawlessness isn't going to be a Hindu. He's not going to be a Buddhist. He's not going to be an animist. He's not going to be some from kind of tribal mystical background because the words that Paul uses for every so-called God and every object of worship specifically refer to paganism. And so Paul is saying that the man of lawlessness is going to oppose every so-called God. In other words, every Gentile God that would have been common in the day from Zeus to Jupiter, to, to, you know, Artemis, to Zorgon, right? Whatever it might be, the man of lawlessness is going to stand in opposition to false gods. Now, it's a little strange because he just told us he's going to behave lawlessly. But the man of lawlessness is going to be opposed to every so-called god. And that word opposed there, by the way, is another word you would recognize 
because it is the word for adversary, which is the name or the title given to Satan. Satan isn't actually a name like, you know, Bob, all right? Satan means the adversary. That's what it means, okay? With capital A, the adversary. And so he will stand as the adversary against every so-called God. That's pagan worship. But the second thing is we know this because of Acts 17 in the, the Greek words that Paul chooses. He will stand as the adversary in opposition to every object of worship. And that word specifically refers to pagan idols. Okay? So why is that significant? That means there is a sense, and this goes in line with what we were talking about last week with a great apostasy from within the family of God or the supposed family of God because you can't lose your salvation. And so these are people who we thought were part of us, but they're not part of us. There is a sense in which the man of lawlessness is going to stand, and I'm going to say it more generally, as part of the monotheistic tradition. In other words, there's a strong chance that the man of lawlessness will be some kind of background of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. The Judeo-Christian worldview, which stands opposed to paganism. Because those three religions all have their root in the same, the same common ground, and they all stand against paganism, as will the Antichrist. Third thing. He will exalt himself over, or you could say he will exalt himself as, that's arguable, the worship of God Almighty taking his seat in the temple. Now remember that Jesus in Matthew 24 didn't say he would take his seat in the temple. What did he say? He said he would take his place in the holy place, parenthesis, let the reader understand. And so we don't know whether Paul is assuming in the temple or whether he's using that literally or figuratively because Jesus said the holy place which might have a different meaning but he sets himself he exalts himself as the object of worship what does that mean it means that the man of lawlessness yeah he's lawless he stands against paganism he also claims or receives worship he receives worship now, you need to realize that when you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament and an angel comes and appears at your door, your door and, you knock, and he knocks on the door and you open the door and people fall to the ground, what does the angel always say? Whoa, 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 don't worship me. Get up. We worship God and God alone. Jesus is the only one who receives worship without telling people to stop, right? We see that in Matthew 28. It's actually... A great argument if you interact with Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that Jesus didn't say he was God. Jesus receives worship in Matthew 28 and at the Great Commission when they meet him on the Mount of Galilee, okay? And so Jesus receives worship. Similarly, the man of lawlessness will not reject worship. He will receive worship as he takes his seat in the temple of God. Perhaps he's going to claim to be God. Perhaps he's going to claim to be the promised Messiah. We don't know. It's conjecture beyond that point. Let's make a couple comments about temple. Temple could mean a few things here. And this is what most commentators will say. There's three main things the temple could be. One, Paul could be saying temple, referencing some temple that's in Thessaloniki, 
where the locals would say like, oh, he's talking about a temple over on 4th Street. It's probably not that, okay? Two, some would say that temple is a reference to the church because Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise temple again in three days. And then he was talking about his body. And then Paul says his body is the church, his temple. The church is the temple of God. And so you could argue quite convincingly, these last two options are both good options, quite convincingly that the temple of God is the people of God. If that's true, that means that the man of lawlessness would be a key figure in the church and would exalt himself within the church and many Christians would be deceived. The third option is that it means the literal Jerusalem temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD. If that's true, then that temple might need to be rebuilt, okay? Now, as a side note, some, since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD at the hand of Titus, some think that this passage points to that event. But the specifics of the destruction and the receipt of worship, among other things, just don't line up. And so it doesn't seem like this can refer to that event because this is not prophetic language here like when you read the book of Revelation. And so most likely this doesn't refer to the destruction of the temple. And it also for the same reason and the same logic wouldn't refer to the various um, religious sites that have been built upon that site since, the Temple of Jupiter and now the Dome of the Rock, okay? And so this seems to be a future or eschatological event. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you sure? Because some of you look like you're not. I know it's a lot. Some of these sermons you have to realize, is like, can you just tell me to be a better dad? This stuff is important. If this is true... You're going to want to make sure you understand what you can understand, okay? And I don't think you can understand all of it, but you do want to understand what you can. And that's why I'm trying to focus on the big things that I think 90% of commentators would say yes. Okay, so that's the man of lawlessness. What does he do? He behaves lawlessly, he opposes every pagan religion, and he receives worship. That's, we know clearly from this passage, that's what the man of lawlessness does, okay? Now let's keep reading. And you know, I love how Paul talks like that, because, well, we don't know Paul, thanks. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill, not with a sword or with a tank, but literally with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The simple appearance of Jesus, the flash of light on the horizon, is going to decimate this. In other words, it's not actually like a real battle that you got to worry about. The coming of the lawless one is by the acti activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, so now, again, we want to step back, 
we say, all right, don't really know what that means. So what can we know? What can we know about the future that God has revealed to us clearly? Okay? What's not conjecture? One, God is in control of the timeline. God is in control of the timeline. He says this. He says, you know what is now restraining him. Now, there's lots of theories about who the restrainer is or what it is, whether it's the entity of the church, a person, a nation. It appears most likely that it's God, okay? (laughs) God is the restrainer. And so the idea is that God is restraining the revelation, the manifestation of the lawless one, or to put it another way, God is holding back the reins on the end time until it unfolds according to his perfect plan in his perfect time. In other words, in the fullness of when God wants it to happen, not a moment before, not a moment too late. It's all in God's hands. It's not in the man of lawlessness' hands. It's not in our hands. We're not going to slow down the end times. All right? Stop listening to that garbage. It is 100% in the hands of a sovereign God, a providential God who literally says Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. And so get a rein on yourself, all right? Jesus is sovereign over this. God is sovereign over this. There is a proper time for the revealing of the man of lawlessness to accomplish God's purposes. And there's a proper time for his destruction. Those things are clear. They're clear from this passage. What it tells us is that over the last 2,000 years at least, right, more most likely, but over the last 2,000 years at least, the man of lawlessness, or the mystery of lawlessness, rather, has been at work, and God is allowing the mystery to slowly unfold, but he has a leash on it, okay? It's under restraint. Now, remember what Jesus said when Jesus came. He said, I come to tie up the strong man. Okay, and so there's a sense in which the man of lawlessness and and the power behind him is restrained. Now, this idea of being restrained but mystery unfolding falls in line with what we see in the rest of the New Testament. John puts it this way. He says the Antichrist, big A Antichrist, will come, but there are many Antichrists. In other words, people who are opposed to Christianity, people who are opposed to the truth. But the point is this. God is in control of the timeline. It's his timeline. It's his timeline. Remember, when, the, when the, uh, the apostles, after Jesus talked with them, Jesus talked with them for 40 days about the kingdom, and then he's like, I'm about to go ascend. Any questions? And they're like, so this uh, kingdom, is this like now? And Jesus is like, oh, my gosh. Just go and make disciples. Don't worry about it. And then he ascends into heaven, okay? (laughs) And so God is in control of the timeline. You're not going to understand it. Jesus taught those guys for 40 days, and they still didn't get the point, all right? And so it's okay. God's in control of the timeline. Second thing is this, and it builds on that. God is holding back wickedness. God is restraining wickedness. You need to get this. Evil is at work. 
but it is being restrained. That means things are not as bad as they could be. It also means things will get worse. You know, in the book of Romans, in the first chapter of Romans, Paul talks about how man denied God, and so God gave him up, gave him up, gave him up. And so God gave him up to a depraved body. And so then he embraced all these things that are counter to God's design, and God gave him up to a depraved mind. And it talks about how God gave man over. And so when we think of wrath, our immediate thought of wrath is active wrath. In other words, people are evil, so God sends a flood. He's going he's gonna to flush the toilet, you know, that kind of idea. But that's not actually the primary form of wrath we see in the Bible. The primary form of wrath we see in the Bible is passive wrath. And path, passive wrath is God giving man up to his own sin, Right? General betrays the, the, the emperor, and then the, the, the emperors, the new emperors, generals betray him. You know, we see sin catching up with people. And that's exactly what we see in Romans 1 when Paul says God gave them up. In other words, they said, well, we, we want to make these decisions for ourselves. We don't want you. And God says, have at it. And then they reap everything that comes with it. And they say, well, we're going to do this. God says, have at it. And they reap everything that comes with it. And so the same idea is true here. The point is that there is a river of chaos and there is a rowboat tied with a rope to the dock. And that river is going and going and going. And the rowboat is going all over. And God's lengthening the rope. He's letting out a little bit more rope. So the rowboat is being caught up in that, in that river of chaos. It's not tightly docked anymore. Now it's going. And one day, you know what God's going to do? He's going to let go. He's going to let go. He's going to rescind his common grace to an extent, and he's going to allow love to decrease and lawlessness to increase. Point is this. We are, and I mean we as the church of God and the world, are completely ignorant to how much grace God pours out on us day by day to restrain wickedness in the world. Did you know it must have been so wicked in Abraham's day? You want to know why I know that? Because even if you started with a few thousand people, the world would have hit today's population in like 150 years. That goes to tell you how terrible it was with everything from infant mortality to murder. Okay? Because it didn't hit that population. God has been restraining wickedness, but one day he's going to cut the rope. The third thing we can know from this is this. Despite the enemy's best efforts, God wins. Despite the enemy's best efforts, God wins. Jesus said false prophets and false messiahs are going to arise and, and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but he says the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the battering ram of God, which is called the church. And he says, the enemy is working hard to manipulate and deceive. I'm going to point something out here. I'm going to show you how hard the enemy is working to deceive. It says, the mystery of lawlessness at work. Talks about God being at work. 
It says that the evil one will come. It says Jesus will come. If you were going to track all of these words in the original language, it says the, the, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. It says Jesus will be revealed. It's the word apocalypto. It says there is a mystery of lawlessness the same way the same author Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. In other words, the word work and coming and revealing and mystery are all words that Paul uses to describe Jesus and his gospel. And the point is this, the man of lawlessness is attempting through and through to be a counterfeit Christ. But it's all smoke and mirrors. Because there's, yes, there's power there, but it's not godly power. It's not true power. The man of lawlessness is a sort of counterfeit Christ. And as the sun is the visible image of the invisible God, the man of lawlessness will be the visible image of the adversary. But we, God's people, will know that he's counterfeit. Why? Because we know the real one. But if you don't know what, uh, you know, whatever it might be. If you don't know what an Egyptian dollar is actually supposed to look like and someone gives you a counterfeit, you have no idea. But if you know what it's supposed to look like and you realize that, no, like, you know, Cheech and Chong shouldn't be on the $20 bill, you know that it's counterfeit because you know what the real thing looks like. Where am I? Cheech and Chong isn't in my notes. The point is this, even with all the fancy signs and wonders and counterfeiting, the enemy doesn't stand a chance. Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth at the appearance of his coming. And so we don't need to be worried. We don't need to be worried about these things. This isn't yin and yang. This isn't an epic arm wrestling match between Jesus and the devil. With all of his trickery, with all of his deception, he's a fake. He's a snake oil salesman. And he's going to be revealed for who he is in a moment. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one. Man, I'm, I'm sorry, guys. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. We're going to do this, this section again next week, okay? So don't be like, I got a lot of questions. <laughs> The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, because they refuse to love the truth, God sends a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. Why? In order that all may be condemned who did not believe but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, we're going to do this next week, so I'm just going to touch on it now. Those who are perishing, those who refuse to love the truth, those who refuse, this is Paul's words, those who refuse to be saved, those who did not believe the truth, those who had pleasure in unrighteousness, they will be deceived. In other words, who won't be deceived? True believers will not be deceived. As Paul says, if it were, as Jesus said, if it were possible, even the elect. But it's not possible because true believers will not be deceived. They can't be deceived, okay? You're not accidentally going to get tricked 
if you're a follower of Jesus. I didn't know. It's not going to happen. You're going to know. That's the point. You're not going to be tricked. But why are they deceived? I, I know it's uncomfortable what Paul says. I know it's awkward, right? I, you might not like it. I get that. But what has Paul said? He says, why are they deceived? Because the tendency of the human heart is not to love the truth, but to find pleasure in unrighteousness. To find pleasure not in the God of truth, but in the God of lawlessness. And since they despise God and they despise his truth, God sends them a delusion so that they believe what is false, just like he did in 2 Kings. But why does God delude everyone else? Why? They refuse to believe. And so that God would be just and God would be true and everyone else would be a liar, he says, have your way. All right. So what does Pastor Bill think about all these things? This is kind of like a summary, and then we're done. I think there is a yet future appearance of a human lawless one whose arrival will be accompanied with false signs and deception and apostasy in mass. True believers will not be deceived, but many who are within the church will be deceived and stand condemned. This leads me to believe that the Antichrist will somehow be connected to the church or a monotheistic religion of the world where the church, the false church, would be sympathetic. The ecumenical church that would say, yeah, well, sure, why can't you have a Muslim guy who's in here? I mean, we all believe in the same God, that sort of thing. The ecumenical church will be okay with it, but the true church will be looked at as bigots because they're not okay with it, okay? His coming will usher in a terrible time of persecution, but it will also precede Jesus' return. And when he returns, he wins. And when he wins, we win. <laughs> yeah, you can clap for that. Okay? In my personal opinion, beyond that is mostly conjecture. Beyond that is mostly conjecture. I'm aware of the other views, all right? We could talk about, is it a Roman antichrist? Is it an Islamic antichrist? Is it a Jewish? It's conjecture. It's conjecture, okay? It's conjecture. Remember this. Remember this. If this is the only thing you remember, you've zoned out, fallen asleep, remember this. There wasn't a single Jewish scholar in the days of Christ who predicted how Jesus came. Nobody thought he was going to be born in a stable. Nobody thought he was going to be a carpenter. Nobody thought he was going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Nobody thought he was going to be a prophet like Moses. Right? Nobody had a clue. That's why they missed it. They thought he was going to come with a sword in his fist, and he was going to come to kick Rome's butt, right? But he didn't. And so the point is, with all of the scholars in all of Judaism over the however many hundreds of years, you know, 500 years, 700 years of analyzing the major prophets and the minor prophets, not a single Jewish scholar predicted it. They all missed him. Why is that significant? Prophecy is only clear in hindsight. 
And if every single Jewish scholar studying it for hundreds of years missed it, why would we think we're going to nail it down? Think about the arrogance of that. It's only in hindsight that it's really going to be clear. And so you stick to what you believe is clearly taught, and you cling to those things. Only in hindsight will we understand the prophetic word fully. Listen, it's easy to become fascinated with these things. It's easy to be overwhelmed by these things. But let's remember the basics. We are, what we are experiencing now in our lives is very much par for the course. <laughs> it's very much par for the course. The wickedness of man is being kept at bay by the grace of God, and the Lord is restraining evil. But as the day of the Lord approaches, evil will increase and restraint will decrease. That's just par for the course. Okay? As scary as that sounds, you need to remind yourself every time you begin to feel anxious that God is sovereign even over the end. His timing is perfect. And as Jesus came in the fullness of time, he will return in the fullness of time. And the son of lawlessness will come when God wants him to so that he can be destroyed. That's why he's going to be revealed so he can get knocked out. It will get bad, but God wins. And here's the last thing I want to leave you with. You hold the hope. You hold the only hope of the world in the gospel of Jesus. Now, a way of righteousness apart from the law has been revealed by faith. To flee from the wrath which is to come. That's what the early church leaders pleaded with people. Flee from the wrath which is to come by turning to King Jesus. And this isn't just for you, it's for your whole family. This is the hope we have, guys. You know how your friends, how your family, and how your neighbors can escape the wrath that is to come. You know it, and we cannot keep it to ourselves. See, understanding the basics of this shouldn't make us panic and, you know, and kind of trawl through the news looking for the man of lawlessness. No, it should inspire you to share knowing that the day is drawing near, even though we don't know when it is, okay? Let me pray. Father God, um, I know that was a lot of information, and I just pray that you would help people to grasp what they need to grasp and I pray, God, that the things that are unclear or from my flesh, they would forget. I pray, God, that we would be students of your word and that we would go back to the word and look at the word together with our families and our groups and the church at large so that corporately we can look at the scriptures and say, is this what's taught? And that we wouldn't just fall for ever, every clever communicator on the planet. And so, Lord, make us a people who pursue truth we thank you that you are a God who is in control of these things. In your name, amen.